Hello and welcome to The Katie Halper Show. This episode is a free Patreon episode, so it's a bonus episode. And I'm making it unpaywalled because it's such an important story. It's about Yemen and the guest is really amazing, Shireen Al-Aldemi. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Leave us a nice review. Also, please support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. You can help keep the show going for as little as $1 a month. And for $5 a month, you get bonus content. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Shereen Aladimi is an assistant professor of education at Michigan State University. Since 2015, she's played an active role in raising awareness about the Saudi-led war on her country of birth, Yemen, and works to encourage political action to end U.S. support. So thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to start off talking about something that you tweeted out today. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby was asked, does the U.S. provide maintenance to the Saudi Air Force? The response was, the U.S. states continues to provide maintenance support to Saudi Arabia's Air Force, given the critical role it plays in Saudi air defense and our longstanding security partnership. However, we have ceased to do in-air refueling. And then the other question, the next question, do we still provide Saudi with intelligence support? Answer, the Department of Defense provides limited intelligence support to Saudi Arabia for defensive purposes only. This includes information on threats to Saudi territory and providing early warning in advance of attacks on their territory when available. You tweeted, as suspected, POTUS is rebranding the war on Yemen as defensive, quote unquote defensive, while continuing to provide maintenance, support and intelligence sharing to the Saudis despite prior promises. And by the way, mid-air refueling stopped in November 2018 while Trump was president. So when Biden announced in February of this year that he's ending um well, he said offensive support, offensive operations in the war in Yemen. First of all, that qualifier was important, right? So we've been talking about ending U.S. support for the war in Yemen. Why is he all of a sudden qualifying it by saying he's ending offensive support? So I suspected that this is a rebranding and uh, a recasting of this war as defensive rather than offensive. And I think the important thing to remember, too, is when the Obama administration entered this war back in 2015, the framing was exactly Uh, what Biden is saying now, which is defensive, which is protecting Saudi territory, protecting this relationship between the U.S. and the Saudis and protecting Saudi territory specifically. And so to go back to that framing as, you know, defensive rather than offensive, when we've seen that the last six years has been six years have been nothing but offensive is, I think, a demarcation that's important. and letting us know that this is just a rebranding. The war continues. Intelligence sharing continues, even though he said we're ending intelligence sharing with the Saudi-led coalition. Um, you know, they're trying to use the mid-air refueling as a success, as something that he stopped. They're trying to claim credit for it, it seems, implicitly, whereas this is something that was stopped supposedly under the Trump administration. So um, I'm not surprised, but I think a lot of people seem to have hope or seem to believe that Biden is genuine. Uh, And I think a lot of um, Democratic members of Congress are in that boat because they're not invoking the War Powers Act to end the war in Yemen as they did with the Trump administration. Yeah, I think that's kind of a a danger that a lot of people predicted. And you don't have to be a like an accelerationist or think Trump was was better or the same as Biden to, I think, be aware of that that element and that something that we didn't have to deal with with Trump in power was the media and the Democrats would, would be so enamored of the president in a way that relate results in really in very little accountability. Yeah. And I think it's because, you know, when it comes to foreign wars, we it's difficult to see differences among Democrats and Republicans, right? This war didn't start with the Trump administration, frankly, if it had started under the Trump administration, I feel like it would have ended by now because it was so egregious. It was easy to get, not easy, but like it was, you know, getting a bipartisan kind of bill um, in 2019 passed the War Powers Resolution was relatively easy to do when Trump was president than if, you know, when Obama was president, when nobody was listening to us, when we were saying, hey, the U.S. is supporting this war, the U.S. is in this war, it should end, right? And similarly now there's all of this kind of um, concern in Congress that they don't want to come across like they're 
you know, going against Biden, whereas, you know, authority to declare war lies with Congress and not the president. So why should we care about the president's feelings when people are dying? You know, a child is dying in Yemen every 75 seconds, a child under the age of five. And so um, every day that Congress is not doing something about this, they're complicit, yet they seem to be much more concerned about their relationship with Biden than ending this war. And what are the ulterior motives that motivate the United States government, that motivate Saudi Arabia? What, uh, what is the, behind the, the war? So the motives are different depending on who you're talking about. If we're talking Saudi Arabia, well, this isn't the first time they've intervened in Yemen. They see Yemen as, you know, their backyard. They need to have control in Yemen, given that Yemen is at a strategic location. So um, Yemen controls Bab el-Mandab Strait, and a lot of Saudi oil travels through that strait, but also just international shipping goes through Asia and through um, to Asia and to Europe and the United States through Bab el-Mandab Strait. And, you know, Saudis has, have always had an interest then in having a dictator that is supportive of them and their views. Um, and with the rise of the Houthis back in 2014, they saw this as a um, as a threat to Saudi Arabia. Um, the U.S., on the other hand, is also has similar interests, but there's also that partnership between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. So they see the Saudis as their client and they're invested in keeping their clients happy. Uh, and Saudi Arabia was particularly unhappy after the Iran deal. And so shortly after the Iran deal, um, they entered this war in Yemen and the U.S. very willingly supported them in this cause. If you're talking about the UAE, then there's ulterior motives as well. In addition to everything that was already said, they've been kind of occupying and controlling islands in Yemen. So they're probably going to annex it, use it for tourism purposes. They've been um, involved in assassination campaigns in the south of Yemen. They've ran, you know, underground police um, secret prisons where they're torturing prisoners. And so they have a much more kind of uh, police state imperialistic concern in that region. And so who are the allies in Congress? Who are the allies, if they exist, um, in Congress and the Senate who are actually still talking about this issue, despite the fact that Biden's president? So Chris Murphy has been very consistent, and he was the only Democrat in 2015 who was speaking out against this war, saying that there was a you know U.S. footprint on every you know, bomb that was landing in Yemen. And he's still been consistently calling for an end to U.S. involvement in Yemen. Um, Ted Liu has been a constant supporter. He recently asked, you know, he there was a hearing that happened with the U.S. Special Envoy to Yemen, Tim Lenderking, and he asked some very pointed questions about, is the U.S. still supporting the war in Yemen? And by the way, Lenderking was not able to answer that question. So if the Special Envoy to Yemen is not able to answer, I think we already had our answer. And now we have confirmation that they're still supporting the Saudi-led coalition. Um, Ro Khanna in the House was instrumental in getting that War Powers Act through, as was, of course, Bernie Sanders, who, who saw it through. So we have these folks who have been consistent allies, but um, I really wish that they would not back off right now. You know, this is a time to push forward and not wait and see, because as we wait and see, people are dying. Yeah. Why do you think they're doing that? I mean, by, I kind of got when people were tiptoeing around things when before Biden was president. Right. They didn't want to get Trump reelected. But why now? I mean, I think the Democrats are probably thinking strategically. They probably want his support to pass all the other things that they want to pass. You know, Yemen is not the only concern. If it were the only concern, um, they would have worked hard to end this war back when Obama was president. Right. And so I think there's a lot of politics involved. Unfortunately, I don't see any other reason because. You know, things are worse now than they were under Trump, of course, as things go. The longer you hold a blockade, the longer you hold the entire people hostage, the more people will die. Right. And so Biden didn't have to escalate anything for the issue to get worse, but it is worse. Right. Um, but I think they're concerned about alliances and partnerships and um, not thinking about this as, you know, this is the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Katie, this is a genocide unfolding um, and no amount of reasoning can, you know, absolve us of and um, our government of what what is ongoing in Yemen right now. And so what are some of the concrete things that could be done? What are the ways that the kind of the, you know, the civilian non-elected official population could help make that happen? Well, I think we need to let our elected officials know that this is a concern of our, ours. Like this war is being conducted in our name. The blockade is being enforced in our name, right? And so um, I think we need to push this issue forward, continue to email them, you know, 
pester them about this, essentially, you know, talk to them about it in town halls, if those are still happening, right? Um, writing letters, calling them especially, and urging them to do two things. And all U.S. involvement in, in Yemen, but through Congress, like legislatively, right? Like war isn't authorized by a president, so don't take a president's word on ending it. We need to have this happen legislatively. And so to ask them to push, invoke the War Powers Act. Um, and then to also urge Biden to um, use his, you know, to basically stop supporting the blockade um, on Yemen. And the blockade is what's killing most people in that country. Uh, and so to use diplomatic effort, to use whatever he needs to be using to end support for the blockade on Yemen. So the ask is really to stop, right? To stop bombing Yemenis to stop supporting the blockade, right? Um, and there's not much more that we can do. Uh, we can donate, of course, to to places like Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundations. Um, but I, I think the most important thing is that Yemenis need the block, blockade lifted and they need this war ended. And it will not end unless the U.S. ends their support for the Saudis because, you know, I've said this before, but the Saudis and the UAE are incredibly incompetent and are 100% reliant on U.S. support for this war. It's like the Saudis, I always think of like Israel as the America's like wife, you know, they always talk about their special relationship with Israel. So like Israel America, is America's wife and then Saudi Arabia is like its mistress or side piece, like the nation that they also have a special relationship with, but they don't tout it as much as they do Israel. Because, of course, the mythology is that the U.S. and Israel have a special relationship. They're both committed to democracy and human rights as like comedic as, as that premise is. But it's a bit trickier, right, with Saudi Arabia, because even though... Uh, as we saw with uh, even the intelligence report, right, about Khashoggi, the murder of Khashoggi, the Biden administration barely did anything about that. But it's tr they don't but they don't get to, like, invoke the special relationship. Yeah, I think we shouldn't take it for granted that uh, I mean, like that what the, the tweet that you read earlier with the Pentagon saying that we we are committed to this to Saudi sovereignty and Saudi territory. And the question on every journalist's mind should be why? Why should I just accept this as as a basic fact? Why are we invested? Why do we have green berets on the ground in Saudi Arabia protecting Saudi territory? And from whom? From a bunch of groups in Yemen who don't even have an air force and haven't inflicted a single civilian death in Saudi Arabia, whereas we have hundreds of thousands of Yemenis who are dead and who have been killed and who are being starved to death. And we're supporting that. Right. And so, again, comparing no Saudi civilians dead hundreds of thousands of civilians dead in Yemen, right? And yet we are committed to Saudi sovereignty. We are committed to Saudi protecting Saudi borders. And the question should be why? These are autocrats, you know, absolute monarchy, um, no human rights for either the Shia population in Saudi Arabia or women for, you know, half their population, women, um, or, you know, their interference in other conflicts. So why should we just take that granted for granted? Um, and, you know, the Saudis citizens can't do anything about what their government is doing. They can't vote. They can't even protest. Right. But we have a lot of power here in a democracy to speak out and to protest and to um, question this relationship. Yeah, I don't even know what that means, a defensive, like Saudi Arabia defending itself. I mean, look, at the, they're occupying Yemen. Right. They've been bombing Yemen since 2015. Right. They are supposedly interested in democracy in Yemen, where, you know, whereas they themselves are a complete monarchy, an absolute monarchy. And so is the UAE. Um, and yet we are just saying, yeah, sure, this is a legitimate concern, um, you know, let's just ignore everything, international law, let's ignore everything and starve an entire people so that Saudi Arabia can save face because, you know, they called this a decisive storm operation that they thought was going to be over in two weeks. And here we are six years later, and they haven't been able to accomplish anything that they said they would. They thought that this would be a shorter operation and they continue to just punish, kill civilians, starve them. And what is it that they're hoping will happen? What's the concrete thing that they're hoping to achieve? Okay, so uh, if we back up a little bit, um, Yemen was under turmoil after the Arab Spring and um, Hadi was placed as interim president. People say he was elected. You know, one man election is really an appointment. It's not an election. His two year term was up. It was extended. And then he resigned. So this is a person who, you know, the Yemeni people didn't give him legitimacy. Right. But he is the U.N. recognized president of Yemen. And. Yet, despite all of this turmoil, um, different Yemeni groups were able to sit together in 2015 and to work out a power sharing deal 
that was overseen by the UN. And this is, by the way, coming from Jamal bin Omar, who is the former special envoy um, from the UN to Yemen, who was negotiating these agreements. And he wrote recently in Newsweek in February that all of this was happening. There was a deal on the table that everybody agreed to. And he was talking to the Saudis about the location of signing this agreement. And within two days of that, the Saudis began bombing. And so they knew that a deal was on the table. They knew that Yemenis had worked things out, but clearly didn't like the outcome of that agreement. You know, they, they wanted Heidi in power because Heidi was going to be a puppet. Um, and other groups in Yemen may have not been puppets to Saudi Arabia. And so the end goal remains that they're trying to force this president down Yemen's Yemenis' throats, basically, and he has no legitimacy in Yemen. He can't even set foot in Yemen. He is based in Saudi Arabia, even in areas that are occupied by Saudi Arabia, um, he can't land without, you know, his life being under threat. And so it's this illogical kind of approach where they thought they were going to bomb themselves their way through um, getting who they wanted. It didn't work. And they just keep doing it, hoping for a different result, you know, and because they keep getting encouraged and supported financially and through weapons and through logistics and through UN cover by the US, the UK, Canada, European countries, they have no incentive to stop. They're just going to keep going and you know, when the bombing didn't work, they started starving people and they think that now starvation is going to get people to surrender. And so um, there I, I wish I knew what their end goal was, other than to say that it's completely illogical. Um, they think they're going to bomb w- their way through getting what they want and hasn't worked. I wanted to ask about Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League. He tweeted out Houthi insurgents basically eliminated Yemen's remaining Jewish community. As Jewish Daily Forward reiterates, those crimes are the natural result of their hatred of Jews. Note the rebels are supported by Iran, whose campaign of terror against Jews knows no bounds. And that was um, in a response to Dr. Sharon Nazarian, who's the senior vice president for international affairs of the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, who they wrote a report uh, called Why Do Houthis Curse the Jews? And she tweeted, the Houthis are a fundamentally anti-Semitic and violent hate group that systematically abuses minorities and targets civilians with deadly force. For more on the group's longstanding doctrinal anti-Semitism, see here. I thought it was shocking to hear this in the context, especially of basically siding with Saudi Arabia. I mean, look, the Houthis are no angels. Um, Their slogan is anti-Semitic, right? Um, And Jewish communities in Yemen have not been treated well by either the Houthis or any previous, you know, um, administration in Yemen. And so there is no defense of that. And what, what the ADL is doing here is using this to, I think, provide support for the coalition. And that's the contradiction that we see over here. It doesn't matter what the Houthis are doing. The Houthis have killed civilians. The Houthis are anti-Semitic, right? But it doesn't matter because we have blood on our hands and our government is supporting the genocide of people in Yemen, right? And they have inflicted more damage than the Houthis could have ever done or even dreamed of doing because they simply just don't have the weapons to do that. Like they, like I mentioned earlier, they don't have a Navy, they don't have an Air Force, they don't have any of these things. And so the people who have inflicted more damage in Yemen are the Saudi-led coalition and we're on that side. And I think what people don't understand is that it's up to Yemenis what happens and who rules them, right? And so if they go out and they decide that the Houthis are their next leaders, that is their decision. If they go out and they decide that they don't want the Houthis ruling them, then it goes back to civil war and they sort their own problems, right? And so I think that people are using this perhaps as a way to support the Saudi-led coalition, uh, but it doesn't make sense because at the end of the day, it's um, the vast majority of Yemeni civilians are starving and are being bombarded because of U.S. involvement and nothing that the Houthis can, are doing can justify our own bloodshed, our own war crimes, our own involvement in genocide. And has the the campaign, the, you know, what Saudi Arabia has done, has that actually like strengthened the Houthis and made them into a kind of made them more popular because they're now this resistance force? Right. Because if you're if you see like the soldiers on the ground, the fighters on the ground, um, many of them were part of the Yemeni military before. Many of them, they're called, you know, the Houthis in the popular committees. Right. So all of these people have joined the fight against the Saudi led coalition, um, whether they happen to be Houthis or not. Houthis, by the way, is just one family. Ansarullah is the movement. Right. And so they wouldn't have been so powerful um, 
were it not for this intervention that kind of saw them now as like defenders of sovereignty, yeah. right? And so, of course, it's made them stronger and that's made Saudi Arabia even more, um, you know, concerned because you can't, in their minds, you can't have somebody ruling Yemen or very dominant in Yemen if they are outwardly anti-US and anti-Saudi. So the Houthis have been vehemently anti-intervention, whether that intervention has been Saudi intervention or US intervention through like drone warfare and things like that. And so... Um, they are not a group that could ever get along with the Saudis. And that's why they're a problem for Saudi Arabia. I asked people on Twitter if they had any questions for you. Can I pose some of them to you? Sure. Great. William Luddy uh, wanted to know what the next Yemen will be. Where is the U.S. being led by slash leading allies into supporting outrageous acts of inhumanity next? And another question, which we we could probably do this one first, actually, is from uh, why, Widow Dido. Why was there no national media coverage of hunger strikes to end American military involvement against Yemen, yet Navalny's hunger strike happening simultaneously saw daily updates? Any new ideas on how anti-war movement can get media attention in light of this failure? Yeah, so the hunger strikers um, were with the Yemeni Liberation Movement, who are a group of um, Yemeni Americans and, and other Arab Americans from Michigan, who uh, went to DC and launched a hunger strike in front of the White House for uh, over three weeks. And Yemeni American sisters, Iman and Mona Saleh actually you know, lasted the longest um, 23 or 24 days, I believe. And they were calling for the end of US support for the blockade. Now, I think they got a lot of coverage. Of course, it took some time, um, but it's still not something that like, you know, it's not something that you heard about on CNN, for example, you know, uh, or MSNBC. But it's, you know, these these women were putting their own bodies at risk as a desperate act to show, look, this is what we're willing to do. We're willing to risk our lives here, our health to bring attention to this conflict, to U.S. support for this conflict. And. Sadly, the Biden administration's reaction to all of this momentum that they helped, you know, kind of push um, was to double down and say that there's no blockade. Right. And so these people are dying. How? They're just towing the Saudi line in the end, you know, the, the U.S. administration to, to, to deny the existence of a blockade, to say that there's no blockade when we know there's a blockade, when, you know, the World Food Organization, um, you know, he's a Trump appointee. David Beasley is saying there's a blockade and it should be lifted unconditionally. When you have Martin Griffiths of the U.N. saying there is a blockade and it should be lifted unconditionally, you know, our administration is saying there is no. And Congress is saying, you know, end the blockade, stop supporting the, the Saudis. And the State Department is saying there is no blockade. And so I think it's it's egregious that, you know, we continue to um, um, I think in, in many ways, the media has has failed. Yemenis has failed humanity in this sense. Right. Um, that we've continued to just be. Uh, providing cover for the administration when we should have been pushing harder. Uh, and I forgot the first question. Is oh, it about where Yemen where, is going Yeah, next? where the next, well, where the next Yemen will be. Where is the U.S. being led by slash leading allies into supporting outrageous acts of inhumanity next? I mean, I'm not sure, but we're not done with this one yet. Yeah, right. Yeah. No? Um, yeah. It's the world's worst humanitarian crisis. I want to underscore that and has been since, you know, three, four years now already. And it's been, it's lasted for six years um, and we're still involved. Hundreds of thousands of people dead. 400,000 children under the age of five are going to die this year if things go as, as continued, right? And the U.S., I think, his role in this has been, you know, undeniably criminal and shameful. In the middle of all of this, we've doubled down support for the Saudi-led coalition. We've cut aid to northern Yemen, where 70, 80 percent of the population lives. This is under the Trump administration. Um, and then now the Biden administration is rebranding this war as defensive rather than offensive. I mean, you've gone to another country and you're helping another a third country like bomb and starve them. And you're calling this a defensive war. This should not make sense to anyone. And yet we're still continuing to support that war. Yeah. Is there even any technical, like, I don't even, is there any tech, is this just a lie or is there some technical like loophole that lets them say it's defensive? I mean, obviously it's whitewash. I mean, I'm not justifying yeah. it at all. I'm just curious if there's any basis in anything. The only basis they have is that technically the Hadi government is UN recognized. Right. And so they're saying, well, if the UN recognized president of Yemen is calling for this intervention, then there is this technical way that we can support it. Now, if we want to have a parallel to that, it's like if Trump, you know, his supporters, I guess, clearly messed up that insurrection and he called on like Russia or something to support him with that insurrection. And the UN says, you know what? 
the president called on this, that's okay. Let's all support him. Canada, you can sell arms to Trump. Everybody can sell arms to Trump. Everybody can support him. You know, it makes no sense, right? right? Like if a president calls on a foreign country to invade his country, that should be treason. That should not be something that the international community supports. If he is right. using starvation as a weapon and the US, by the way, in the most recent report saying, oh, the Saudis are not starving Yemenis or, you know, through this fuel blockade, it's the UN recognized president of Yemen. Okay, fine, then why are you on his side, right? Right? When he's using right. this blockade as a way to starve Yemenis, why are you continuing to be on his side? And so I think that's the, the hypocrisy here. So they're just doing the bidding of Saudi Arabia while pretending to be helping spread democracy. Uh you know, one of the things that is really striking is the kind of media blackout. I mean, when you compare the discussion and the, the coverage, you know, just thinking about like the Iraq war, there was that story that wasn't true about, you know, Saddam uh, Hussein, uh, not literally, but his his soldiers, I guess, what, grabbing babies from incubators, throwing them on the ground, totally fabricated story, but the media, you know, per perpetuated it, never corrected it. Um and you have actual like documentary evidence of absolutely, I mean, I don't even know what the adjective to use here is, but it's it's just like appalling, uh, like heart-wrenching children who are being starved. And there's very little visual representation of that in the media. And, yeah. and I, I don't know if that's intentional, like if it's a if it's an actual policy, if people just get the memo that they shouldn't be covering this, what do you think it is? You know, I've I've been wondering that myself. And the only reason I'm doing this work, you know, my my work is in education. Right. I was a doctoral student when this started. I have nothing to do with politics. I never even used to air any political opinion online before, you know, as like a Muslim immigrant, like in the US, you kind of watch your back, right? right. And so there is no, uh, you know, I was, I, I entered this out of desperation because I'm looking around and it was, you know, I know that my family back home is being bombed. I know that the U.S. is involved because I, I read things. I read statements coming out of the White House, you know, Obama White House. And the Saudis announced that the war was happening from Washington, D.C. in English, not from Riyadh in Arabic, you know. And I'm wondering why people weren't covering it, you know. And so I decided to kind of enter this this arena because at some point you're like, okay, well, I guess I should start speaking about it because nobody else will, you know, and I, and I write about this and I speak about this, but it's frustrating because it's like, I think people really wanted to believe um, that Obama was a peacemaker that, you know, he said he was. And, and there's all of this evidence to the contrary, like starting all of these wars, bombing seven countries. And yet there was so much resistance to questioning what President Obama was doing. And I think because this war started under President Obama, there was this like effort by the press to like protect him from this for, you know, for some reason, right? Whereas, I mean, it's baffling because you have a free press in this country. We don't have to follow this, you know, the state's kind of orders. And yet oftentimes they behave in a way that makes you think otherwise, right? Um, but yes, the pictures coming out of Yemen and the videos, like if people watch the Oscar-nominated short film uh, Hunger Ward, it's, you know, it's gut-wrenching and, and it's not something that's happened in the past. It's happening right now as we're speaking with support from our government. And this should be on every, you know, news cycle all the time. But if it were, I feel like the war would have ended several years ago, right. you know, and it wasn't. And I feel like there's so much blame to go around. Um, there's so much complicity either in silence or in, you know, making it look like this is so complicated and the end message as well, those Yemenis deserve it, you know, or making it look like, um, you know, the Houthis are so egregious. And so it justifies what we are doing in Yemen, right? And nothing justifies what we're doing in Yemen. Um, you know, if the Houthis wanted to burn things to the ground, why should we also go and burn things to the ground right. and say, well, we don't want them to burn things to the ground. We want to have a bigger fire than them. Like, it just makes no sense, you know? Um, so I think there's failures on multiple fronts, including, uh, unfortunately, media. They're now starting to talk about the blockade after the recent CNN investigation where, you know, the reporter, she had to smuggle herself to go to Yemen, Namad Baget, and, um, and report on the blockade. And even then, the Biden administration denied the existence of the blockade. Yeah, this is Trump level dishonesty, right? Absolutely. Where's the outrage? Where's the, you know, invoking our sacred institutions of, a, of a, you know, the fourth estate, democracy, respect for human rights? I mean, it is really infuriating to watch people like uh, basically give Biden a pass for things that 
they would rightfully have called out Trump for. Um, And also the other danger with with Biden is that like he is, you know, I think a lot of people think like, okay, Yemen was taken care of. Like we stopped supporting the Saudis there. So that's that's good. That's been taken care of. And like the the refreshing thing about uh, Trump was that he did not care at all about like covering up the true mo- remember when, when they asked him about um Khashoggi and he was like well we're not doing anything because they're buying the Saudis are buying a lot of weapons from us it's like okay now we all know it's out in the open and they're paying cash yeah yeah and with Biden it's like we have to people have to decipher it because he's not wearing his sociopathy on his sleeves the way that you know Trump Trump did I always joke sometimes joke it's like who said it trump or chomsky because they'll make the same point about u.s empire but like chomsky will be critical of it and trump is just saying it like it's okay um (laughs) which is a fun game um they have very different styles of talking so it's not a very good trivia game but um yeah it's it's i'm just i'm yeah i'm shocked by the media's silence on it and there is so much blood on so many people's hands and people i think should be forced to see those photos i mean i don't know how i know that like i think twitter um marks it as sensitive material which i guess i get but also it's kind of like the least people could go through like the least we could do is look at that yeah i think you know, and I, I struggle with sharing those images. Um, I always have because at the end of the day, these are children, you know, these are people, human beings with names and, and I, and there's no consent, right? Like a bomb drops and you see somebody in pieces. And I think to myself, is that, that would that person have consented to this? Does their family consent to these photos being out there? But at the same time, you know, it speak to Yemenis posting these photos and they're like, literally nobody knows what we're going through, you know? And this is like our desperate way. They don't want to show they're dead and they're dying, right? But this is such an act of desperation. They're trying to show to the world, look what you're doing to us, look what you're doing to our children, you know, look what you're doing to our country, right? In hopes that people will be, uh, moved by those images. And I know that people are moved by those images. And, you know, when I watched Hunger Ward, I sobbed from the first several seconds to hours after the film, just couldn't stop sobbing. And I intentionally avoid videos coming out of Yemen and photos so that I can do this work, you know, but um, it actually, you know, puts the numbers behind, like you read about these statistics and then you see a child being starved and it's a violent act. You know, it's starvation is not this passive thing. Starvation is one of the most violent things that a child can go through, that a person can go through. Um, and it just reinforces how much more work we need to do. You know, like this is happening now. Um, people will look back and say, you know, we should have never done this. But, you know, we have that opportunity now to stop what we're doing, you know, for protesting every day, for writing to our Congress people, our senators, calling them, shaming them into ending this war. That's what we need to be doing here. And um, can you talk about the particular um, effect of co- that COVID has had? Yeah, so um, I, I just called my mom before, sorry, I wasn't <laughs> expecting that question. I just called my mom before this interview and um, uh, an extended family member had just passed away from, from oh, COVID. Sorry. And um, this is the third. So she was the third sibling to have passed away from COVID in Yemen. Um, And the reality is that, you know, in a country where, again, 30 million people in Yemen and there are 700 um, ventilators for 30 million people. And there are 500 ICU beds for 30 million people. Right. And there is a blockade that prevents medicine from coming in and from food and fuel, fuel that runs the generators of the hospitals. So hospitals can't even function. These are the hospitals that haven't been bombed. So half of them have already been bombed. The other half are barely functioning at 10% capacity. And then you have water that is severely scarce in Yemen. And on top of that, you know, water plants have been targeted. um, And um, most people don't have access to clean water. So about 70% of the population doesn't have access to healthcare or clean water and diseases like cholera and dengue fever and diphtheria have just, you know, become the worst outbreaks in modern history. Right. And on top of that, you add COVID and we have the highest death rates in the world in Yemen. And now the cases, the official cases remain small because there's no systematic way to track, to trace, to provide, you know, uh, relief for COVID patients. But from the small numbers that we've seen verified, the death rates are about 30%. This is the highest in the world. And now there's a second outbreak of cholera in Yemen. And 
I think it's, it's worse than the first outbreak and we don't have the numbers, but people basically die in their homes. You know, like there, I had two aunts, two of my aunts had COVID and you you just pray. You don't even know what to do. You just pray that they're going to recover from it. And thankfully they did, but like, it's like, it's bad here in the United States and we're the richest country in the world. So you can only imagine what it's like in a country like Yemen, who it's already struggling with all of these other health concerns and outbreaks. And so you had, um, you said three siblings in an extended family have, have died? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, my mom was, was uh, crying when I called her because she, she knows them and, you know, she's just like, there's nothing you can do. If somebody has COVID in Yemen, um, you know, what do you do? You just tell them to stay at home and, and hope for the best. They can't go to the hospital to get oxygen. They can't you know, they don't have ways to deal with something like that. Um, most people just have no way to access even Tylenol for a simple cold, like that could kill a child, right? Because people just don't have access to that. Um, and so, you know, it's let alone vaccines and, and all of those things. And, and you, uh, you family still there? Like, where is your immediate family? Immediate family is in Canada. Um, we moved out of Yemen uh, after the second after a civil war in 1994, a couple of years after that. But I have lots of extended family in um, all parts of the country, all the major cities. So Sana'a, Hodeida, Taiz, and Aden. And um, have you been back since leaving? I've been back twice, but not since 2004. So quite a while. Yeah. Um, and are you, you in touch with them regularly, your family there? Yeah, we have all of these uh, family WhatsApp groups. Um, And so anytime there's like a a bombing or, you know, we're always having to check our phones. Like my phone is currently in front of me, not because I'm obsessed with texting or anything. It's because in case something happens in Yemen, we just want to be able to make sure that we're constantly in touch. And this has been our lives for six years. You know, every time I hear something about something on Twitter, I check with family members um, to make sure people are okay. And have you lost other people besides the the three people you mentioned? Oh, yeah. I mean, in the past six years, if you ask any Yemeni anywhere in the world, they'll tell you that they've lost a family member. Um, They'll tell you that their family members have been displaced, have been um, unemployed, have been sick and not been able to receive medicine, have been killed in the violence, have been, you know, like, I don't don't think a single one of us has not had a family member pass away because of this war. Um, Two of my cousin's um, homes were bombed and, um, you know, they survived, but they were injured. When my grandma was sick, there was no way to get her out of, out of Tez. Um, and uh, my cousins basically had to kind of put her in a wheelbarrow and get her out of the city. And this is a 90 year old woman, you know, because there's no transportation and there's no safe way to get out of the city. Um, and so, you know, she's passed away since. And I, and I remember just feeling like, okay, well, you know, at least she doesn't have to suffer one more day of bombing, of being afraid of bombs, you know, and that's not a reaction you want to have for your loved one. You know, like you want, it doesn't even allow you to mourn that person properly because all you're thinking about is like, well, at least they don't have to worry about, you know, bombing. At least they don't have to suffer through this war anymore, you know? Um, And that's the kind of frame of mind that I've had that it's just, I mean, it's devastating, you know? Yeah. Um, And is there anything else that you want to share? I mean, about Yemen, things that people don't know about the country, how, how much it's changed, how much, what aspects of it are, have been maintained over time? Um, Do you like coffee? I love coffee. I'm drinking it right now. So you can thank Yemenis for brewing the first cup. (laughs) Wow. I did Um, not know that. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. Um, So the coffee bean was discovered in Ethiopia uh, and, you know, Yemenis and Ethiopians have a long history, a long connection. And and Yemen was the first time that coffee was brewed as a, as a drink. Um, And it's such a big part of our culture, our heritage. And the word mocha actually is a physical location in Yemen, um, the port of mocha, where they used to export the beans out of that port. Um, But we had a very clever ruler in the north who used to grind the beans and then export them so that they couldn't be planted elsewhere. Um, And then they were smuggled out of Yemen and like grown in different parts of the world. So many of the coffee plants that are high quality trace their roots back to Yemen. So coffee culture is huge in Yemen. And I think that's something that surprises people when I tell them. But, you know, it's a country that's fallen on harder times in modern times, but has 
several thousand years of history of civilization um, and it has some of one of the most unique cultures and unique buildings and some of the most generous people that you'll meet, you know, in are in Yemen. Um, and I think that's the kind of, I mean, and it's not like that's our worth as human beings. I think we could have just been complete desert and with no heritage and we should, still shouldn't have been killed. But I think it's just kind of just to put things in um, in context. It's it's sad for me as a Yemeni uh, American seeing that, you know, all people know about Yemen is war, you know, um, but there's a lot more to it before the war. And I wish that people will learn more about Yemen. But right now, the immediate action, of course, is to end this war so that people can resume their lives. Um, but one of those days, we're going to have to start talking about reconstruction and uh, restitution, um, not as charity, but as obligation, you know, to the people of Yemen for, you know, the things that have been taken away from them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really, uh, it's it's so frustrating because this, it's this combination of like, the only thing people know about is is the war, but it's also kind of, it's so far away. It's like over there. Yeah. Um, and you know, one thing I, I was thinking about when you were saying that during the Iraq war, there was all of this attention about the war and the fabrications and whatnot, but there was also a backlash against sending U.S. troops, right, to, um, to the war. Um, and I remember in Canada at the time, we were student protesters and we were protesting Canada involved in that, in that war. Uh, but even in Vietnam, people started protesting when Americans were coming back in body bags, right, when it was connected to people here. But, you know, I was at a, at a talk and um, a person who's with Veterans for Peace um, mentioned something that I think really just kind of it, it's relevant here. He said there are no veterans of the Yemen war, right? There are no U.S. veterans of the Yemen war. And I think that contributes to this feeling like, well, is the U.S. even involved in Yemen if there are no troops on the ground? And yes, you know. Obama and Biden and Trump, they've gotten smarter about how to engage in these foreign conflicts without actually sending a single U.S. soldier in Yemen, right? So they can position themselves inside Arabia. They can provide mid-air fueling. They can be in the command room helping the Saudis choose targets. And they're so involved in this war that Congress passed a historic war powers resolution saying that, you know, the president has no authority to be in this war. And yet there are no veterans U.S. veterans to the Yemen war. And so I think that makes people feel even more disconnected from this war. Um, and the way that this has been reported just so irresponsibly, when it is reported, you know, it, it mentions this as like, oh, there's a famine happening in right. Yemen, as though it's like a drought or something, you know, as though Yemenis imposed, yeah, or as though Yemenis imposed this blockade on themselves, right? Um, there is no recognition of U.S. involvement and Western involvement. You, were, you, you have a pin tweet, right, that responds yeah. to a Red Cross tweet? Yes, I can put uh, it in the chat. Oh, great, yeah. Which I think is like exa exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so so the, the Red Cross tweeted out, um, two-thirds of people in Yemen have almost nothing to eat. That's over 20 million people, which is an insane, staggering figure. And then you write, here's why. When Saudi, UAE, US, UK couldn't colonize Yemen by traditional means, they systematically targeted food and water sources and blocked the entry of fuel and food via land, air, and sea. 20 million Yemenis are not starving. They're being starved. Yeah, this is not a passive, you know, like these organizations have such a passive way of reporting this information and they're doing really important work, but it's like, when you are just providing aid, you're putting a Band-Aid on, on this gushing wound, right? The wound here is that they're being bled dry by the world's superpowers, by some of the world's richest countries. Um, and aid isn't going to cut it. Why are we talking about aid? Well, the only reason Yemenis need aid, 80% of them need aid, is because there's a blockade that prevents commercial you know, imports. And Yemenis used to rely on 90% of their food and you know, needs and goods through import. And so you cut that off and you regulate what's coming in. And by the way, this is UN sanctioned because the UN approved a security measure that calls on Saudi Arabia to check every vessel coming in through um, to Yemen for supposed arms from Iran, right? And so under this guise of an arms embargo, they've essentially, you know, been able to block anything that they want at any time, including fuel and food and medicine. And this is an active process that led to these people being starved, actively being starved and are being killed. You know, this is not a passive thing. 
And the reason they're even able to do this is because they designate the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization? No. So they were able to do this without that. Um, the Trump administration actually, in one of his most cruel turns, um, labeled the Houthis as, a, as you know, this FTO designation went through a day before he left office. And Katie, I can't begin to tell you how devastating that was for everybody because, you know, we can't, that means that no aid organization can operate in Yemen. Um, that means that people like me who have family back home, we can't send money anymore for our loved ones who can't work, you know, who aren't receiving salaries to be able to go to the market and buy something. Um, and it would have, there isn't a genocide unfolding right now that would have been total genocide. Right. And so thankfully the Trump, the uh, Biden administration was quick to reverse this designation. Um, and it's like the quickest designation to reversal that's ever happened in U.S. history. The shortest one before this was two years, um, but they were able to reverse it right away because um, they actually acknowledged that this was a misuse of the designation because the Houthis call them what you may, but they're not terrorists. Um, and the Trump administration was just using this as another weapon of war. Um, and of course, it made the Saudis very happy, but at, at the very least, they were able to reverse it. But yeah, they're just doing this because they can. You know, they don't need any justification. They are just doing this because they can. Yeah, um, it's really disturbing. Um, I think that the point you made was really important about how this, you know, it's just the status quo or just even ameliorating a little bit means it's increasing. Like the, the crisis isn't being increased because yeah. that's what happens over time. So you can't really use like people can't take too much solace in the but it's not Trump. Um, because while maybe I'm sure it would have been worse, it's still getting worse. So there's yeah. like, this is no time to be complacent. No, um, this is the time to act. And this is what I was worried about. So the day that Biden made the announcement that he was, um, you know, ending offensive operations, I co-wrote an article with Sarah Lazar for In These Times. And we said, this is not the time to celebrate. This is the time to kick into high, high gear because pay attention to what he's saying. And I refused to celebrate even, you know, with, with anyone at that time, because I was like, this is when we turn away and like, you know, you get stabbed in the back, right? Like um, he got all the positive PR he wanted, right? And, but then when you read the fine print and it wasn't even that fine. He was saying, we are going to review relevant arms sales. And guess what? He pushed those arms sales through anyway. These F-35s that were paused to the UAE were now have just gone through last week. And so he got the positive PR for that and it just went through anyway, right? He said he's ending offensive operations and just redefined offensive as defensive and it's business as usual. He said he's ending intelligence sharing and now they're admitting that, oh, we're actually giving them some intelligence sharing. And now he's trying to get credit, take credit for ending mid-air refueling, which happened under Trump. And so, um, you know, a child was dying every 10 minutes under Trump and now it's every 75 seconds. So these conflicts just get worse. And unless the Biden administration pulls every iota of support from the Saudi-led coalition and then uses their diplomatic efforts to get the UK and to can Canada and all these other countries to stop um, supporting them and to, you know, lift the blockade, then, you know, more Yemenis continue to die. Were you always political? Did this politicize you? Same thing with your family. Like, did the, the experience of leaving Yemen change your kind of view of the world? And also, does it affect what you focus on? I mean, I know you're a professor of education. Does it shape the way you teach about education? You know, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question. That's such a good question. Thank you. Um, let me start with the second one. Um, in education, my work is, is so different, vastly different. I used to be a teacher and um, my work focuses on literacy outcomes. So I look at classroom discussion and I look at the ways that teachers can use discussions to support students learning and thinking and writing and comprehension. Uh, and so a lot of the classes that I teach are preparing teachers how to work on literacy and, you know, become literacy teachers. Um, but then, you know, this work kind of gravitated me to a course um, about immigration policy and education, which I would have never taught before. You know, I, my degree has nothing to do with that, but all of this work 
is very relevant. So we talk about U.S. imperialism and the causes of, before I can even talk to them about the border crisis, why is there a border crisis? Like, why are people leaving South America, right? Like, why are people leaving the Middle East? Why is there a Muslim ban when the U.S. is involved in bombing these countries anyway and destabilizing these regions in the South of, um, you know, Southern America? So I ended up teaching a class like that, which I, um, and we talk about American exceptionalism, of course, and, and all of those things that drive, um, um, immigration policy and language policy in the U.S. And so I think that's been a really interesting course that I love to teach um, and that students connect with very well, but it's also a direct consequence of this work that I've been doing over the past six years, this advocacy work. But in terms of whether, you know, this, this is what kind of got me into this, you know, my family was uprooted from Yemen um, because of the uh, conditions under the dictator Saleh, which was, he was a very close U.S. ally and Yemenis revolted against him in 2011. And this was the start of all of this uh, upheaval. But, you know, I'm from the south of Yemen. And in the south, um, we were under British occupation for 139 years. And then we turned into a Marxist country, the Middle East's first and only to date Marxist society. And so I was born in um, a communist state in, in Yemen. Um, Mazel tov. Which no longer exists. Yeah. And um, so I, so I, you know, I grew up with a lot of these, you know, socialist ideas and, and even though that model failed in Yemen, because there was a lot of, um, you know, infighting among the Marxist leaders, um, there was still that spirit of socialism. Right. Um, and then when Yemenis united North and South, it was like uniting oil and water. Like it just did not work because you had different experiences and histories and, and types of governments that evolved. And within four years, the unity broke down in another civil war in 1994, which I was, you know, old enough to remember and to live through. Um, so I think that war had kind of, you know, if there's one moment in your childhood that you kind of point to as the point turning point and making you turning you into like, you know, making you feel like you had to grow up faster than you mm -hmm. needed to, you know, that was it. I was 10 years old and, you know, it was a brutal war that Saleh had led. Um, and I think since then, obviously, like you grow up with these ideas that, you know, nobody deserves to live under dictatorship. Nobody deserves to live under, um, you know, an autocratic kind of dictatorship. And yet here we were in the West um, with our government supporting these very leaders. Right. And so I've always had a strong sense of what justice should look like, what, you know, um, I don't know, accountability and like freedom should look like, what liberation should look like. But I don't think I, I formalized this in a way to be able to speak about it publicly because of something I mentioned earlier. You know, I, I once I moved from Canada to the US, then you, I know, in post 9-11 world as a Muslim, you kind of have to be very careful about what you say publicly. And so I wouldn't even like a message on Facebook that I felt like was too political, you know? Um, but then when this war started, I wasn't even a U.S. citizen. I only became a U.S. citizen last year. Uh, but it just, it's one of those things where you say, you know what? I actually don't care what the personal consequences are. Um, this needs to be said. I need to make sure that, you know, I have the mic, so to speak. Like if somebody will give me, give me the mic, I need to speak out for what I think is right. You know, there are all of these warmongers on TV who have a mic shoved in front of their faces all the time. Why should I be shy about defending, you know, people's freedom and the right to live free from bombs and starvation? That is not a position to be ashamed of, you know? And so I think that was a very liberating thing for me to just say, like, I don't really care what the personal consequences are. Um, this is the right thing to do. Have you faced personal consequences over it? I mean, oh yeah. Like we get branded, me and a few other people who do this work, we get branded as Houthi supporters because I think people have a really hard time delinking, you know, the two. Like you can be anti-imperialist without being pro anyone, you right. know? Um, and nothing I do has been in the defense of Houthis because at the end of the day, I really believe that's the right of Yemenis to choose. Um, whoever, you know, they can yeah. choose whoever they want, but they have that right to choose. And Yemenis have worked so hard for the right to choose. And we're talking about a country here, just, just so people understand, you know, they live among all of these autocrats, like whether it's Oman, Saudi Arabia, yeah. Kuwait, Qatar, you know, Bahrain, all of these autocrats, absolute monarchies. And then you have this country who was under 
British occupation in the, in the South until they kicked them out. Like resistance kicked the British out of South Yemen. Um, resistance kicked the Ottomans out of Northern Yemen. And then more resistance kicked the monarchy out of North Yemen. And then these countries united, it didn't work so well. And then they worked together to get Saleh, a longtime dictator of 33 years out of office. You know, so there's a spirit of revolution. There's a spirit of democracy, you know, and to think that they would just sit back and take it if, you know, they ended up with another autocratic rule is it's you know insulting to people who've worked so hard and sacrificed so much so that they can have a say in their own future, right? And so they give me a lot of hope and inspiration. Um, but you know, there is resistance for this work. There are a lot of Yemeni Americans who support the State Department, whether it was under Obama's Trump or now Biden, who support intervention in Yemen because they feel like that's better than having the Houthis, um, you know, uproot them and their status and their you know, wealth and their connections and everything that they benefited from under previous administrations. Um, but I, it doesn't phase me, you know, I don't have to have their blessing to do this work. Um, I don't have to have anyone's blessing, right. To do this work. I just, for me, I just do what I think is right. And it, so is that, and forgive me, cause I'm totally ignorant about this, but is no. there a class element in terms of, I mean, it's always like we see, like ask a Venezuelan or, you know, <laughs> Cubans are saying this. It's like, well, yeah, okay. But look who, if they're in the United States, look, I mean, it depends on when with Cuba, but like if you're Venezuelan here, Cuban here, um, you know, you may have a certain lifestyle and perspective uh, that people in that country may not have. So there's always this like ask, believe a yet believe a Libyan, believe a, a Colombian, whatever it is. Um, uh, is so so. What do the and there seems like there's a range, right, of Yemeni yeah. uh, the Yemeni community and population. Like I'm from New York City, and there are all these Yemeni bodegas. I have no idea what their political like. And I'm sure again, it's not a monolith, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you just give a kind of lay of the land of of the different um, communities here? You know, it's it's complicated because some of it is is a class element because there is a, a certain group of elites in Yemen who benefited under Saleh and, um, you know, kind of want, want to maintain their status quo. And even when they moved against Saleh, they were still latching on to other elite groups, you know, so there's this wanting to maintain. And a lot of these Yemenis are, you know, Yemenis with Internet connection and, and you know, with English, <laughs> right, skills. Right. Um, and so, again, not a monolith, but many of them have supported this intervention in one way or the other because they see the Houthis as just like backwards and not representative of them. And, and that may be the case. But again, it's not up to a few elite. It's up to the masses. Um, in the U.S., I think many Yemeni communities have also been for a long time pro-intervention. So many Yemenis in New York or in California um, or even here in Michigan are opposed to the kind of work that I do. Um, and they see me as, again, they're having a hard time with this idea that I can be anti-intervention, but I'm not supporting any group in Yemen, including the Houthis. And so um, they see this as a justifiable means to an end. And that end is getting rid of the Houthis for whatever reason, you know, they may hate them for whatever reason, because again, the Houthis are no angels, but also um, neither are the Saudis or the Emiratis or the U.S. So I don't understand where the line has been drawn there. Um, but I, you know, there are a few American, Yemeni American women who do this work um, outwardly, vocally. Uh, and it took us a while for us to find each other and to trust each other and to collaborate with one another because each one of us has faced so much resistance from our own communities here in the US. For me, I think it's a little easier because I'm, you know, I grew up in Canada. I'm not well plugged into any Yemeni community, right. large Yemeni community in the US. And so I, couldn't care less, you know, what the resistance or the backlash is. Um, but I know for some of my other Yemeni American friends, it's more difficult, you know, because they're plugged into these communities and they feel like they've been shoved out of those networks. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it is what it is. I don't know why people continue to feel like, I mean, nothing justifies this starvation of a child, right? And so um, if I, I, I actually haven't spent any time trying to convince those Yemeni American communities to come on board, even though it would be amazing to have a, a unified Yemeni voice on this, because I feel like if, a starving child didn't convince you that the stance is wrong, then I have nothing to say to you. You know, like I will work with people with allies who are, who don't need that convincing, who don't need the convincing that bombing children is wrong, that starving civilians is wrong and who will just get down to the work, you know? So that's the kind of position I've taken. Right. And that makes, I mean, there, cause there's so many potential allies who just don't know about it. 
versus yeah. the, the people you're talking about are people who know about it and have taken chosen their sides. And how old were you when you came here? I mean, came to can to Canada? I was twelve. Okay. Um, it's uh, it's uh, interesting. Like you're saying that people. I mean, a lot of liberals get this when it comes to like Iraq. They get that you're not a Saddamist if you oppose yeah. like the war in Iraq. Yeah. But people say the same thing. Uh, it seems comparable, although the situations are different. But with the Houthis and the and like um, and Assad, right? It's mm-hmm. like if you oppose uh, Syrian intervention, uh, you are an Assadist, right? <laughs> and I don't know what if you're if if there's like a Houthian or whatever the adjective would be. A Houthi, but, yeah, right. But I mean, like a Houthi supporter, like yeah. Assadist, like Houth, Houth, Houthista or something. I mean, I'm making. I it mean, up. they haven't been. They haven't come up with a catchy term like yeah. that. But yeah, um, it's it's preposterous to me that people can't understand that you can be just a principled anti-interventionist, right? right. Why can't it end there? <laughs> you know, yeah. why do I have to support my own country's bloodshed in another region of the world, no matter what that region is, right? Whether it's Venezuela, Bolivia, like Syria, Yemen, why should I, you know, support? Um, why can't I be against those interventions without necessarily, you know, gunning for the other side? Right. right? Yeah. We're, it's our, our government is this one. Like, yeah, I don't have any influence right. over the Houthis. My government right. has no influence over the Houthis. I mean, nobody does, clearly, right? And in the name of trying to stop Houthi atrocities, which, by the way, like when all of this started, like where were the Houthi atrocities? They've taken over the capital Sana'a, but still they were able to sit down and forge an agreement with other Yemeni groups under the um, you know um, negotiation of the UN. But it's just that the Saudis and the US didn't like that agreement, and so they bomb their way through. Right. But, um, and I think people have a really hard time with this for some reason and it makes the work more difficult, but you know, at, at the same time, I feel like if your brain is just not able to process this and if you will resort to logical fallacies, like calling me a Houthi or saying, well, what about the Houthis or what about Iran? Like, I don't know what to do with that. Take my argument, break it down. If that's too difficult for you, I'm just going to walk away. You know, I have nothing to yeah. say. Yeah, the, it's always like the what about the the foreign a government over which I have no like power. no control, yeah, right. no control, no influence. Um, I didn't vote for for the Houthis or Iran. Like I vote here in this country, and my elected officials are complicit in this war. Yeah, I'm just reading another question. Um, someone wrote my Discord wrote, um, um, "Why do you think it gets so little coverage from the mainstream and even progressive media? Arguably." less so than even the Palestinian struggle. In general, why are leftists in the U.S. becoming less interested in global issues? Is it a direct result of economic situation getting worse and worse domestically? Um, And how likely is it that Yemen will become a breeding ground for the next ISIS, al-Qaeda, et cetera? Uh, What can an average person do to stop the suffering of the civilians who are caught up in the conflicts? Those are huge questions. So whichever yeah. ones you want to. I, I want to talk about the the terror kind of lens, because I think that one of the other things that Americans always do is to look at us as a bunch of terrorists in, in waiting, you know, um, and I can't underscore how racist this view is. And but it's so common. Right. It is so common to look at these people over there. And unless we come and do something about that, about that, and usually that do something about it is kill them and their neighbors and their kids and whoever. Right. That. Um, unless we do something that they're going to just turn against us and come and, you know, inflict harm on the U S now there is a problem in Yemen of Al Qaeda and and ISIS and the U S has been waging war um, under the AUMF in order to try to mitigate that issue in that time, they've just created more problems because they'll go and they'll target a civilian um, or their target a suspected terrorist and kill their neighbors and their children and whatnot. And even us citizens. And I'm sure people who follow this know about that. Right. Um, but at the same time in this war on Yemen, where the Saudi led coalition is leading this war with substantial, you know, all encompassing support from the U S there has been documented evidence of the Saudis using Al Qaeda as foot soldiers. You know, and so on the one hand, the U.S. says that they want to get rid of terrorists in Yemen. And on the other hand, they're working with Saudi Arabian coalition who has no problem partnering up with Al Qaeda when it's when it's convenient. Um, The Houthis, on the other hand, have been very successful at getting rid of Al Qaeda in northern Yemen. There are no Al Qaeda attacks in northern Yemen anymore. Al Qaeda and ISIS, you'll only find them in areas in the south of Yemen, which are controlled by the coalition, right, by the Saudi UAE led U.S. led coalition. 
Um, and so I think when people look at us as, as a bunch of terrorists, first of all, they forget that terror affects us most than, you know, and by us here, I'm, I'm talking about my Yemeni half, you know, um, it affects those people in, in the immediate vicinity more, you know, like the targets yeah. of terrorism are Yemenis. And so Yemenis are also most invested in getting rid of that threat. And no amount of U.S. intervention is going to make that problem better. It's only made it worse. And it's been hypocritical because we've worked with these groups to, um, you know, uh, further our own, our own gains. I think, I mean, I'm not to play, uh, like, run interference for the person who asked this. I think that, like, uh, sometimes people on the left can be a little, like, reductive and they think it's like, okay, what's the U.S. going to do now to ironically yeah. create the next thing that we claim to be against? you know, like how, you know, we help create, you know, strengthen Osama bin Laden yeah. or, you know, with going to Iraq, help create all these, you know, expand all these networks. Um, but yeah. yeah, point taken, obviously. No, um, no. I, and I understand that. Um, it's just that I also think it's, it's important to, to look at conflicts as unique, you know, yeah. um, there are some, there's some overlap in the way the U S operates. Cause a lot of it is rinse and repeat. Right. Right. Um, but there's also some unique positions here. And in, in the case of Yemen, because it's a country that's kind of disempowered at, at the UN level um, and is basically hostage to its puppet, you know, leader who is based in Saudi Arabia and is letting all of this happen in there, you know, on his behalf, uh, it's created the situation where there's legal cover, you know, for the U S and the Saudis. Um, yeah. And yeah. Like I have to cop to that too. It's easy to just plug it into a formula, like a pre-existing formula. Yeah. Um, I think you know Americans have to be like sent, like aware of the history and how much the U.S. how hypocritical the, the U.S. is, and also like look at the unique, like you were saying, unique yeah. context. Yeah. Um, um, definitely come back. I'd love to have you on, and you should and come on a live show. I want I do live shows also. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I'd be happy to, be and um, I think. You know, it's not, I think for people just to, if, if they feel bad listening to this, it's like, oh, I haven't learned about this. I haven't done anything about it. Like, it's not too late, you know, like, yes, this conflict has been going on for six years, but the reason I keep doing this and I keep talking to people about it and doing these talks and interviews and writings is because I've just seen how much people are moved by this, right? Like they, once they learn about it, there's a sense of commitment that I want to do something about this, you know? And so I really urge people, and this is kind of like the easiest form of activism too, is just to email your congressperson and to just be a, you know, a, just a constant pest about it, you know, until they are just tired of you telling them about right. it and they're going to do something and they're going to co-sponsor the next thing or, you know, like lead the war powers resolution or thing, something like that. Um, but I think just the message is that this really needs to end. We don't need any more U.S. involvement in this. The U.S. doesn't get a doesn't get to turn around and play, you know, firefighter when they're still being an arsonist, right? Um, we can't give Biden any PR for, for this. It just has to be very consistent that we need to end all U.S. support for this war. And I know that some people wonder about like donating and, and mm -hmm. supporting. Uh, and so I always recommend um, Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation, YemenFoundation.org. And then um, for people who want to watch Hunger Ward, they can also go to HungerWard.org and donate to the clinics that have been featured in the in the film. Um, so that those are two ways that people can help. But, you know, just the solidarity means everything to me because um, I'm connected to this issue. Obviously, I have family back home. I know what Yemen means to me. And yet so many Americans who can't even find Yemen on the map are moved by what we're doing there to do something about it. And I always just find that really heartwarming. Yeah. And definitely follow Shireen on Twitter uh, at Shireen818. So that's S-H-I-R-E-E-N 818. And uh, follow her work at In These Times. But yeah, definitely a uh, really important uh, Twitter account. Thank you so much. So, yeah. Thank you. Great. Thanks again so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. And please support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. I'm about to drop a Patreon-only discussion with Brianna Joy Gray and Leslie Lee, where they react to the Chauvin verdict and talk about Nancy Pelosi. 